I asked myself the question this week, what's the smallest detail that could unravel even the most clever serial killer? I'm M. William Phelps, an investigative journalist and author of 40-plus true crime books. I've dedicated the past 20 years of my life to helping families of the missing and murdered. Join me. We're crossing the line. You know, a lot of true crime podcasts, investigative shows, and even crime writers like myself have weighed in on this week's subject, Israel Keys, a serial killer who chose his victims randomly. But I have my own take on this guy. I covered the case on my former investigation discovery series, Dark Minds, in a special two-part episode that first aired in 2013 called The Secrets of Israel Keys. I was investigating Keyes as the story was breaking, filming and speaking to several people involved on the front lines. For reasons I'll soon explain, I can say that working this story weighed heavily on myself and my crew. (laughs) And that's because Keyes was a special kind of monster. To better understand Keyes, I want to discuss his last known victim. On February 1st, 2012, 18-year-old Samantha Koenig is working the night shift in one of those drive through coffee stands found everywhere around Anchorage, Alaska. As I was working the case at the time, I visited this particular location. It was called Common Grounds Espresso. Now, you have to picture this. It's a small kiosk parked in a desolate corner of a gym's parking lot. The street it's on, Tudor Road, is heavily trafficked. So on that night 10 years ago, it's just before 8 p.m. and the stand is about to close. Israel Keys gets out of his truck, which is parked across the street, and walks up to the kiosk's open window. He orders a coffee. It's a cold night, low 30s, so it's likely Samantha didn't find it strange that this customer who just came up to her window is wearing a ski mask. She makes the drink and hands it to him. Keyes pulls out a gun and demands money. She gets the cash together and hands it over. Then Keyes forces himself into the stand. He zip ties her hands together. And then he asks her where her car is parked. Well, Samantha had been dropped off, so she doesn't have a car. He then wrestles her out of the kiosk and begins walking her toward his truck kind of, you know, holding her to his side tightly, right? Surveillance footage shows that Samantha fights. She struggles to get away and actually runs. Keys chases and tackles her. He presses a gun into her body. It's a, a 22 caliber pistol he says has a silencer on it. And he threatens to kill her if she tries escaping again. Okay, so you mentioned that Keys picked his victims randomly, but it sounds like there was some money involved too. That is the beautiful voice of my executive producer, Catherine Law, who you're going to hear from time to time. And she brings up a really good point here. Keyes committed robberies to kind of finance his travel for murders. He wasn't a local murderer guy. He didn't drive around in a white van, you know, with zip ties, a shovel and some chloroform. This guy traveled thousands of miles to commit murders, which we'll get to. But with this particular location, he chose it because it was open late. He knew only one person would be working at that hour 
And usually, it's a young woman since most of the kiosk employees were teenage students. And Key spent days leading up to this particular night doing drive-bys, kind of casing the joint. I, I don't know. I would call that stalking myself, but, you know. So now Keyes forces Samantha to walk across Tudor Road with him to the parking lot between an IHOP and a Dairy Queen where his white truck is parked. This detail will tell you a lot about the kind of guy we're dealing with here with Keyes. He had removed the license plates and the mounted toolbox from the bed of his truck. So why do you think he removed the toolbox? I think he removed the toolbox because not every truck has a toolbox. You know, it's only a small percentage. So in order to just blend in with the rest of the trucks around, he takes the toolbox out. So someone doesn't describe a white truck with a toolbox. And I'll say this, not many serial killers display the level of organization that Keyes did. I'll give you a better example. Keyes was a handyman. In fact, I was told he was one of the best in Anchorage. People loved his work. I even met a couple and they showed me some of the bookshelves he built inside their home. And creepy as it was, uh, you know, looking at this stuff, I have to admit the guy was a really good carpenter. He was meticulous. He paid close attention to detail. But in my professional way, that fits into the psychopathy of being extremely organized and methodical in what he did. In this case, though, Samantha Koenig in Anchorage, a craving for power and control took over and Keyes got sloppy. And when I'm talking about sloppy for Keyes, we're talking about the tiniest mistake. First, I want to talk about Samantha Koenig. The photos of her I have, you can see she has this engaging smile, very magnetic. You could tell she was friendly and kind. And I got this from talking to people about her. In my view, she was a child, her entire life ahead of her. Also, in my opinion, allowing a teenager to work at a coffee kiosk at night alone, that's dangerous. This detail kind of bothers me a little bit, but it is a fact. The police did very little at first to look into her disappearance. And here's why. She had been working at the coffee stand for a few weeks, and she had a troubled history to some extent. Law enforcement initially believed she robbed the place and took off with the money to go party. It would be nearly two weeks before police seriously began looking into her case. And by that time, she's already dead. This is my problem with this. And you've heard this before on this show. Police assumed something. You can never assume anything when you're looking for missing people. If you assume, if you make a judgment, oh, she's just out partying, she stole the money, she bought drugs with it, it could be a number of reasons, you lose very precious time. And time is your biggest enemy in a missing person case. Now, Keyes has a police scanner in order to know where law enforcement is. And he also walks around Anchorage with Samantha for five hours, reportedly being seen by over a dozen people. There's video of this abduction, which is chilling. And it feels like literally something out of a horror film. Keyes is six foot two, a foot taller than Samantha. She's no match for him. He says later he was going to wait until her ride came 
and abduct both. It's like this unquenchable thirst at this stage of his murder run. At this point, he can't control himself anymore. As he abducts Samantha, it's been eight months since Keyes has killed anyone that we know of. In the end, the act of controlling and killing, the fantasy aspect of it for Keyes, he cannot stop obsessing over. Now it outweighs everything else. And when you look at this case, that's really his undoing. We'll be right back. I just want to break down for a minute Israel Key's psychopathy. He's a killer who seems at first glance to be, quote, different, like a super killer, if you will, when in reality, he falls in line with most serial killers. So let me break that down. Antisocial personality disorder. He robbed banks. He was an arsonist. You have no regard for other people's feelings. You have no regard for other people's lives. He was good to family members and community members, described him as an average dude when reality check. So was John Wayne Gacy. Keyes was about power and control. A hedonistic killer, meaning he derives pleasure from the act of killing, you know, like a thrill killer which does make him slightly unique in that respect as a serial killer. And Keyes had OCD, another common trait among serial killers, I might add. Keyes liked to partake in obsessive ritualistic behavior that was intensified by the fantasies in his head and his need for gratification. And we're going to get to some of that later on. The one thing that is different is that he chose victims without preference for race, age, gender, social status, Whereas lots of serial killers have a preference for a specific type of victim, sex workers, children, blondes, brunettes, white, black, etc. The guy knew exactly who he was and what he was doing. Make no mistake, Israel Keyes was a monster, a powder keg of violence flying around the planet, basically, choosing people at random. So what creates a monster like this? Keyes was born in Utah in 1978 into a Mormon family. They moved to Stevens County, Washington. He was homeschooled. He had nine siblings. The family attended the Ark, a white supremacist church connected to what's called the Christian Identity Movement. Simply put, we're talking about a hate group here. Keyes was also honorably discharged from the Army where he spent two years. From all accounts, he had a horrific childhood that fell in line with the common abuses we know some serial killers experienced during their childhoods. I don't want to draw one ounce of sympathy about this guy. That's not my job. You want to know about his abusive childhood? Read Maureen Callahan's book, American Predator. You can get all the detail you want. Going back to Samantha Koenig, what happened when Keyes forced her into his car? He zip ties Samantha to the seatbelt and tells her he is holding her for a ransom that her family will have to pay. He wants Samantha's phone. She left it in the kiosk. So Keyes drives back, cleans the kiosk, and finds her phone. He then sends a text from her phone to her boyfriend and her boss. And he basically says, I've had a rough week and I'm leaving town for a few days. And then he takes the battery and the chip out of her phone. 
Keys takes Samantha to his house in Anchorage and he ties her up in the shed out back. He has a girlfriend and a daughter who live with him in the house, but they've gone on vacation. The FBI, meanwhile, with the Anchorage PD, are now on this case and looking directly where they should, at family and friends. Three weeks into her disappearance, Samantha's boyfriend receives another text. This is all it says. Connor Park, sign under pick of Albert. Ain't she purdy? Now, Samantha Koenig's debit card was inside her boyfriend's truck. She had given keys the address to where her boyfriend's truck was parked. So after he tied her up, he headed out to that truck to grab her card. As I looked at this, I don't know if I believe that or not. I think he he probably killed her first. The point is he got her debit card and he got her number so he could get cash out of her account, which is an important fact in this case. To fund for his next killing. Exactly. Not only his killing, but all the tools he needs to set up his kills, the money he needs to pay his bills because he would, you know, go out into the woods for a week to look for somebody. So, you know, there's all kinds of funding going on here for him, but it all pertains to his serial murder. So now going back to that message he sends to the boyfriend, the text, Connor Park, sign under pick of Albert, ain't she purdy? Law enforcement, of course, is called to the park, that location, and there's a plastic bag with a photo inside. The photo is of Samantha, and there's a note talking about putting $30,000 into Samantha's account. That photo was of Samantha holding a newspaper dated February 13th, almost two weeks after her abduction. So what he's saying is she's still alive. Over the course of the next week, and even longer, Keys wearing a covering over his face, a hoodie, dark shades. Remember now, the FBI has not identified him yet, but he is photographed making withdrawals from Samantha's account. Can't tell who he is, but something is a bit strange. The withdrawals are made in Arizona, New Mexico, Humble and Shepherd, Texas. I mean, you can't get much farther from Alaska than Texas. Yeah, trust me, I flew that route that Keys took, and it took forever. So this is significant. I mean, the guy's making withdrawals all over, like, the Southwest. Now, in one of the ATM photos, Keys, who'd been flawless and undetectable for what amounts to about 12 years, he makes a costly mistake. He allows the vehicle he'd been driving to be photographed by the ATM CCTV. It seems like such a simple and sloppy mistake to make. Well, he's running on adrenaline at this point. You know, he's killed for a long time. There's a lot of different parts to this particular crime, this particular murder, and he makes this small mistake. It ultimately sends law enforcement on the lookout for the vehicle, and they find it. A Texas trooper pulls over keys, searches the car, finds a gun, Samantha's ID, and that ATM card, her cell phone, and the disguise matching the one from the ATM CCTV. Israel Keys is caught. He's 34 at the time. He has no criminal record. He's a construction handyman business owner in Anchorage, and people like him. He lives in a suburban neighborhood with his girlfriend and his 10-year-old daughter from a previous relationship. He was a trusted member of his community, In fact, someone from the U.S. Attorney's Office in Anchorage had actually hired him once 
even get this, even gave him the key to his house so Keys could work inside his house when he wasn't home. All right, so I, I just want to say this up front here. A lot of the detail I'm going to talk about next, some of which is very graphic, came from the FBI, and this is important to me, who spoke to Samantha's family before releasing it publicly. And some of this is from my own reporting I did while in Texas and Alaska. Key starts talking to the FBI. And here's the thing about this interrogation. Every time he sits down with them, he has a detailed request, a Snickers bar, Americano from Starbucks, and a specific brand of cigar. They give it to him, of course, but it's a display really of his absolute narcissism and his deep need to control every situation. Keyes had placed photos of Samantha purportedly being alive in that ransom note bag. But as they start talking to Keyes, any hope that Samantha Koenig is alive dissolves. He had chained Samantha up in his shed. He sexually assaulted her. Then he strangled her to death. Now, I was told by high-up law enforcement that Keyes sewed her eyes open, put makeup on her face, and posed her to take those photographs to make people think she was alive. And the photos are just horrific once you realize what they are. That is straight out of a horror film, like sewn eyes open. Well, the photo, he kind of blurred it. It's kind of blurry a little bit. And it's black and white, I think. So remember, you're looking at it wanting to believe she's alive right away. Your mind is saying, I want to believe she's alive. You look at it, her eyes are open, she's holding the paper, she looks scared, but she is dead and she's probably been dead for at least 10, 12 days maybe. So not only does he do that to Samantha Koenig, he dismembers her and he places her body parts in a lake while he's fishing one afternoon. Well, he points the FBI to where? 10 hours of diving, and the FBI recovers Samantha's body parts. Like a lot of his victim choices, Keyes was more focused on location and surroundings than the victim. The victim became secondary to his choosing the right location to not draw attention to himself. Though in this case, you really wouldn't think so. When I pulled out my file on Keyes, I'm going through the pages, and a lot of them are smudged, you know? And it brought back a memory of when we were going up to staircase uh, in the Olympia National Park where I believe Key stalked and killed a hiker, which he was never charged with or never connected to him in the end. We're talking about a rainforest. I have never seen rain like that in my life. So my point is this. Keyes was up there for sure, we know. The idea that Keyes chose a victim in this rainforest on the top of this mountain in the middle of, literally in the middle of absolutely nowhere, tells you about his absolute focus and the kind of killer he was and the fact that the victim was secondary. Going back to the beginning of this, Keyes had bought himself some time by sending that text to Samantha's family telling them she'd be gone for a few days. And that's what threw the Anchorage police off the trail for a time. But in choosing Samantha, he broke a golden rule that he had really been living by for all those years and one that he went to great lengths to follow, disguising his location. After 10 years that we know of, of not being caught, the urge to kill became overwhelming for him. So Keys could not control the need to kill anymore. 
And this is why he grabs this girl in his backyard because he lives in Anchorage. This was something he would have never, ever, ever, ever done is abduct somebody in his hometown. This is a guy who traveled 3,000 miles to abduct someone and kill him. It's kind of like you don't commit a crime in your own neighborhood. People are going to know who did it. Picture these FBI agents sitting in the room with him. Actually, you can picture them because you can see him on video. It's all over the place, but it's like an uh-oh moment. You know what I mean? Washington State, California, Wyoming, Texas, and Vermont, to be exact. But before Keyes will talk about it all, he again pulls the I'm in charge card psychopaths love to use. And he says this, he says, I'll tell you about everything and give you every gory detail you want, but I want an execution date. I want a promise that I'll get the death penalty. I mean, it's all about the control. You can see it right there in that word he chooses, gory, right? He thinks he's giving him a bone by saying, I'll give you all the gory detail. I'll give you all the salacious stuff you want. So I think I'd like to play a quote by Keyes from his FBI interviews. Listen to this. They're going to tell you something that does not line up with anything I tell you because I'm two different people, basically. And the only person who knows about what I'm telling you, the kind of things I'm telling you, is me. How long have you been two different people? <laughs> a long time. 14 years. If you watch the interrogation videos of Keyes, you'll see the amount of control he wields. The laughing. The laughing is just, it'll make you sick. The power he tries to rein in. You know, it's that smugness. One of the most obvious things is he has zero emotion for any of this stuff. It's, it's just all a game to him. He's laughing, he's joking, he's drinking his coffee, eating his candy bar. It's like he gets this self-satisfaction of holding on to information. And, and I mean, that's what these guys do. The quote I played, it is the furthest thing from the truth about him. Israel Keys is not two different people. The FBI is really shaken to their core when Keyes admits to killing a married couple, Bill and Lorraine Courier, 4,000 miles from his Anchorage home. Now, I remember being in Essex Junction, Vermont, and talking to the detective who took the call from the FBI that day. The detective took me out into the woods where Keyes buried one of what he called his kill caches, an orange Home Depot five-gallon bucket, which he utilized in the abduction and murders of Bill and Lorraine Courier. In it, we have a silencer, a plastic stock for a 22, a drum magazine, and, and look, just a bunch of other weird serial killer shit that you can go online and you can see the actual pictures of what's in there. The Courier's house just happened to fit what Keyes was looking for at the time, an easily accessible garage. He wanted to kill a couple. That was his goal. He didn't know who until he found the couriers. Something else, too, that sparks a memory for me of, of being in Vermont is that he also wanted to choose a house that didn't have a dog. I think that's very important. So they have a garage. They don't have a dog. What does that mean? He can go in the back. He can get in the garage. He can get in the house. No one will see him. What he did to these people, it was barbaric. He took them to an abandoned farmhouse he had scoped out previously, restrained them in separate parts of the building. He sexually assaulted Lorraine, and he killed her while her husband was forced to watch. And then he sexually assaulted and killed Bill, Lorraine's husband. And I was told he also sexually assaulted Bill's corpse later. 
Again, this is all about power, power and control. There are far too many layers of this case to focus on in the time we have, but there is, as I said earlier, a well-done book about keys, American Predator by Maureen Callahan, that details it all. She did a fantastic job on this book. A lot of exclusive reporting, which I can appreciate. She noted that Keyes had fitted himself with a gastric band and he had visited a plastic surgery clinic in Mexico, kind of theorizing that Keyes was meticulously planning to become an even more stealthy killer, like the lap band surgery so he wouldn't get hungry as often, you know what I mean? And the plastic surgery was to change his fingerprints and he even removed all his body hair to lessen the chances of leaving evidence behind. But we need to take a quick break. So I'll be right back. For me and this show, I want to end this episode by talking a little bit about the effect a case like this can have on law enforcement and people who go down the rabbit hole of it all, writers like myself, producers and TV people, etc. You have to understand that you don't really realize truly how a case like this can seep into your psyche. I mean, while I was investigating this case, to hear the details from those who knew them intimately, some of which were far too graphic to put into my two-hour TV special, it became all-consuming. You begin to question humanity a little bit, and Keyes was not a serial killer who needed recognition and notoriety, which made him even more dangerous. It's believed that he began killing in 2001. He buried bodies. He put bodies in water so deep there is no chance of ever finding them. He owned property, as I said earlier, in upstate New York. He abducted random females and killed them and transported their bodies to other states to dismember and discard and bury. Before he even started killing, in the 90s, he raped. He drove around the country and he raped people. So do we know how many victims there were at the end? We will never know. I mean, 11 murders, the FBI says, at least. But there's no way we'll ever understand the extent of what he did to people while they were alive or dead. A majority of these bodies were never discovered. So really, Keyes could have said anything he wanted. But look, a guy like that says this, you believe him. Keyes once said, you don't know the depths of darkness that I've gone to. You don't know what I've done. I believe him when he says this. This is not an exaggeration. In December 2012, 34-year-old Israel Keyes committed suicide in his Alaska jail cell by embedding a disposable razor blade into a pencil and slitting his wrist and using a sheet to strangle himself. In 2016, a CO, a corrections officer who was watching Keyes, was fired for, quote, negligent inattention over what happened. To me, that's bullshit bureaucracy, the state passing the buck. Here's the truth. Nobody was going to stop Keyes from killing himself. Keyes left behind a blood-soaked note, not really a suicide note, but more so the ramblings of a psychopath. He committed suicide because he knew the death penalty was not going to happen, at least anytime soon. He didn't want a trial because in his grandiose way of thinking, he is trying to spare his family, especially his daughter, the, the details of his true self and his gruesomeness. And here's something I've thought about for many years. I believe he killed himself because he knew he would eventually, after years of being in prison, begin talking about his crimes. He wouldn't be able to help himself. He'd become that nicknamed serial killer he never 
want it to be. Sources for today's episode come from an FBI press release dated August 12, 2013, an article on FBI.gov titled Seeking Public's Assistance, New Information Released in Serial Killer Case, various articles from the Anchorage Daily News, American Predator, The Hunt for the Most Meticulous Serial Killer of the 21st Century by Maureen Callahan. Crossing the Line is a production of iHeartRadio. It's executive produced by me, M. William Phelps, and iHeart executive producer, Catherine Law. Special thanks to producer Rose Bacci and EP Christina Everett. Audio engineering, original music, and sound design by Matt Russell. Additional thanks to Will Pearson at iHeartRadio. The series theme, number 444, is written and performed by Thomas Phelps and Tom Mooney. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.